In bringing you the first edition of the Rebirth of the Dial, I thought it might be interesting to take a look at the introduction of the Dial under its original auspices by Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1840. From Volume 1, Number 1, The Dial, a magazine for literature, philosophy, and religion, July 1840. The Editors to the Reader We invite the attention of our countrymen to a new design. Probably not quite unexpected or unannounced will our journal appear, though small pains have been taken to secure its welcome. Those who have immediately acted in editing the present number cannot accuse themselves of any unbecoming forwardness in their undertaking, but rather of a backwardness, when they remember how often in many private circles the work was projected, how eagerly desired, and only postponed because no individual volunteered to combine and concentrate the free will offerings of many cooperators. With some reluctance, the present conductors of this work have yielded themselves to the wishes of their friends, finding something sacred and not to be withstood in the importunity which urged the production of a journal in a new spirit. As they have not proposed themselves to the work, neither can they lay any the least claim to an option or determination of the spirit in which it is conceived, or to what is peculiar in the design. In that respect, they have obeyed, though with great joy, the strong current of thought and feeling which, for a few years past, has led many sincere persons in New England to make new demands on literature, and to reprobate that rigor of our conventions of religion and education, which is turning us to stone, which renounces hope, which looks only backward, which asks only for such a future as the past, which suspects improvement, and holds nothing so much in horror as any new views in the dreams of youth. With these terrors, the conductors of the present journal have nothing to do not even so much as a word of reproach to waste. They know that there is a portion of the youth and of the adult population of this country who have not shared them, who have in secret or in public paid their vows to truth and freedom, who love reality too well to care for names, and who live by a faith too earnest and profound to suffer them to doubt the eternity of its object, or to shake themselves free from its authority. Under the fictions and customs which occupied others, These have explored the necessary, the plain, the true, the human, and so gained a vantage ground, which commands the history of the past and the present. No one can converse much with different classes of society in New England without remarking the progress of a revolution. Those who share in it have no external organization, no badge, no creed, no name. They do not vote or print or even meet together. They do not know each other's faces or names. They are united only in a common love of truth and love of its work. They are of all conditions and constitutions. Of these acolytes, if some are happily born and well-bred, many are no doubt ill-dressed, ill-placed, ill-made, with as many scars of hereditary vice as other men. Without pomp, without trumpet, in lonely and obscure places, in solitude and servitude, in compunctions and privations, trudging beside the team in the dusty road, or drudging a hireling in other men's cornfields, schoolmasters, who teach with a few children rudiments for a pittance, ministers of small parishes of the obscurer sex, lone women in dependent condition, matrons and young maidens, rich and poor, beautiful and hard-favored, without concert or proclamation of any kind, They have silently given in their several adherence to a new hope, 
and in all companies do signify a greater trust in the nature and resources of man than the laws or the popular opinions will well allow. This spirit of the time is felt by every individual with some difference, to each one casting its light upon the objects nearest to his temper and habits of thought, to one coming in the shape of special reforms in the state, to another in modifications of the various callings of men and the customs of business, to a third opening a new scope for literature and art, to a fourth in philosophical insight, to a fifth in the vast solitudes of prayer. It is in every form a protest against usage and a search for principles. In all its movements, it is peaceable, and in the very lowest marked with a triumphant success. Of course, it rouses the opposition of all which it judges and condemns, but it is too confident in its tone to comprehend an objection, and so builds no outworks for possible defense against contingent enemies. It has the step of fate, and it goes on existing like an oak or a river, because it must. In literature, this influence appears not yet in new books so much as in the higher tone of criticism. The antidote to all narrowness is the comparison of the record with nature, which at once shames the record and stimulates to new attempts. Whilst we look on this, we wonder how any book has been thought worthy to be preserved. There is somewhat in all life untranslatable into language. He who keeps his eye on that will write better than others, and think less of his writing, and of all writing. Every thought has a certain imprisoning as well as uplifting quality, and in proportion to its energy on the will, refuses to become an object of intellectual contemplation. Thus, what is great usually slips through our fingers, and it seems wonderful how a lifelike word ever comes to be written. If our journal shared the impulses of the time, it cannot now prescribe its own course. It cannot foretell in orderly propositions what it shall attempt. All criticism should be poetic, unpredictable, superseding, as every new thought does, all foregone thoughts, and making a new light on the whole world. Its brow is not wrinkled with circumspection, but serene, cheerful, adoring. It has all things to say, and no less than all the world for its final audience. Our plan embraces much more than criticism. Were it not so, our criticism would be naught. Everything noble is directed on life, and this is. We do not wish to say pretty or curious things, or to reiterate a few propositions in varied forms, but if we can, to give expression to that spirit which lifts men to a higher platform, restores to them the religious sentiment, brings them worthy aims and pure pleasures, purges the inward eye, makes life less desultory, and, through raising man to the level of nature, takes away its melancholy from the landscape and reconciles the practical with the speculative powers. But perhaps we are telling our little story too gravely. There are always great arguments at hand for a true action, even for the writing of a few pages. There is nothing but seems near it and prompts it, the sphere in the ecliptic, the sap in the apple tree, every fact, every appearance seems to persuade to it. Our means correspond with the ends we have indicated. As we wish not to multiply books, but to report life, our resources are therefore not so much the pens of practice writers as the discourse of the living and the portfolios which friendship has opened to us. From the beautiful recesses of private thought, 
from the experience and hope of spirits which are withdrawing from all old forms, and seeking in all that is new somewhat to meet their inappeasable longings, from the secret confession of genius afraid to trust itself to aught but sympathy, from the conversation of fervid and mystical pietists, from tear-stained diaries of sorrow and passion, from the manuscripts of young poets, and from the records of youthful taste commenting on old works of art, we hope to draw thoughts and feelings, which being alive can impart life. And so with diligent hands and good intent, we set down our dial on the earth. We wish it may resemble that instrument in its celebrated happiness, that of measuring no hours but those of sunshine. Let it be one cheerful, rational voice amidst the din of mourners and polemics. Or to abide by our chosen image, let it be such a dial, not as the dead face of a clock, hardly even such as the gnomon in a garden, but rather such a dial as is the garden itself, in whose leaves and flowers and fruits the suddenly awakened sleeper is instantly apprised, not what part of dead time, but what state of life and growth is now arrived and arriving. In the same spirit of the 1840 dial, I introduce to you The New Dial, a magazine for poetry, philosophy, and religion. Why the dial? The spirit of libertarianism is always forward-thinking. It is not a longing for something past, never a quest for the return to something that once was, but has since corrupted into a state of disrepair with the passage of time. The progressive mindset is a panicked animal flight from history in the pursuit of a mechanical utopia, clutching blindly at levers in the absence of principles while measuring progress by the ticking of the clock. The progressive becomes trapped by that self-same ticking, which counts down to the destruction of dreams that were reared upon self-destructive fantasies lorded over by consequence. The conservative mindset is petrified by a longing for a utopian past that never was quite rooted in sacred principle, for a bowed-the-rise history that never knew how to confront the uncertainty that the future brings. The conservative wishes to wind the clock backwards to a history that is fixed because it is dead, in the retreat from tomorrow, and she furiously polishes her family's brass watch to remove the corruption of time's tarnish. She never notes that the watches stop ticking for all of her polishing, and that she has become trapped in a routine without promise of reward in something new, something unknown, something illuminating. Most people fall into the darkness of despair and urgency by turns because they do not have the courage of principle. They grope blindly through consequence while heedless of responsibility. The progressive and conservative tendencies always circle back to an entrenched conservatism, for the progressive must aggressively conserve some portion of his gains against the consequences of his recklessness, which result in waste and wantonness. 
the conservative grasp for the ghosts of past principles, pounding the heaveless breast of a corpse as if principles were something to be recovered from a grave, rather than lived in the present. Conservatism, Ralph Waldo Emerson pronounced in 1841, speaking before a meeting of Freemasons, always has the worst of the argument, is always apologizing, pleading a necessity, pleading that to change would be to deteriorate. It must saddle itself with the mountainous load of violence and vice of society, must deny the possibility of good, deny ideas, and suspect and stone the prophet. The spirit of liberty, on the other hand, has nothing for which it need apologize, for it has not saddled itself with misery. The culture of liberty seeks to break the bonds of inherited oppressions and to learn from the consequences resulting from the herd's schizophrenic panics without apologizing for them. In 1841, Massachusetts was papered over by the Christian Examiner and the North American Review. The North American Review was a miscellaneous journal filled with antiquities and curiosities, being dedicated primarily to book reviews. Its content was generally rooted in academic interest of the Harvard and Yale divines. The journal's editors were dedicated to building culture in America. However, it was a culture with the distinctive British accent that was already fading fast from America's coastal tongues. It was a journal patterned upon what had floated across the Atlantic, as literary flotsam jettisoned from a dying empire. The journal ran from 1815 until 1940, but it has since been revived by the University of Northern Iowa. Time has not enhanced its appeal. I had to laugh in spite of myself when recently clicking on a link to the review, which directed me to the campus website. The first image that the website loads assures us that we are in the presence of a more inclusive campus that is, thank the gods, a safe zone ally. The more things change, the more they stay tucked safely within the inclusiveness of the herd. Sheltered from challenge, feeling, iron, rust, hardship, and principle. Conservatism makes no poetry, breathes no prayer. Emerson continued, has no invention. It is all memory. Reform has no gratitude, no prudence, no husbandry. The libertarian is not concerned with this retreat into establishment and narcissism. The Christian examiner, on the other hand, was a vehicle of religious nonconformity in 1824, catering to the Unitarian and Latitudinarian intellectuals of Massachusetts. At the time, the state of Massachusetts still maintained an established church by means of a theodemocratic majority. Citizens were ordered to attend church, under penalty of law, and taxes were raised by the state and allotted to the theodemocratic majority within a given locality. Almost by default, this system created a Congregationalist, or Puritan, establishment throughout the state, equipped with public funding and compulsory attendance mandates. Hence, there was something almost apologetic in the Christian Examiner's mission statement, as if it feared to court controversy lest the political powers turn their attention to those troublesome Unitarians stirring up resentment with the established church system, since opposition to the system was opposition to the most revered golden calf, democracy itself, as well as to establish religion. It was in the Christian Disciple, the forebearer to the Examiner, that in November 1822, Ralph Waldo Emerson published his first essay, 
deliciously, we might so call it in retrospect, given the theodemocratic wealth distribution in his home state, entitled Thoughts on the Religion of the Middle Ages. By 1832, Emerson was preparing to shatter the mold in his private journals, even before he shattered his church by leaving it. June 2nd, 1832 I have sometimes thought that in order to be a good minister, it was necessary to leave the ministry. The profession is antiquated. In an altered age, we worship in the dead forms of our forefathers. Were not a Socratic paganism better than an effete, superannuated Christianity? Does not every shade of thought have its own tone, so that wooden voices denote wooden minds? Whatever there is of authority in religion is that which the mind does not animate. Here among the mountains, the pinions of thought should be strong, and one should see the errors of men from a calmer height of love and wisdom. What is the message that is given me to communicate next Sunday? Religion in the mind is not credulity, and in the practice is not form. It is a life. It is the order and soundness of a man. It is not something else to be got, to be added, but it is a new life of those faculties you have. It is to do right. It is to love. It is to serve. It is to think. It is to be humble. In 1840, he was already organizing a new coterie of intellectuals, libertarians and abolitionists, who were not interested in the old academic exercises, in Christian apologetics, or in stale conformity with the herd mentality. Time for him was no longer a mechanical game of desperate reform or conservative idolatry. The light, he wrote of transcendental ideas, is always identical in its composition, but it falls on a great variety of objects— and by so falling, is first revealed to us, not in its own form, for it is formless, but in theirs. The spirit of American individualism was awakening and shedding new light upon the cracks that had long been spreading through the spiritual and intellectual foundations of Boston. It was illuminating a world people by statues. And as the light progressed, it showed not only how much further liberty, thought, and markets had moved, but that it could move beyond the shadows of what was known. And in 1841, Emerson's labors brought forth a new journal, The Dial, a magazine for literature, philosophy, and religion. The magazine, revered and reviled, challenged the centralizing dogmas of the academic age with a scattershot intellectualism aimed at universal principles of liberty. It aims at the discussions of principles, rather than at the promotion of measures. And while it will not fail to examine the ideas which impel the leading movements of the present day, it will maintain an independent position with regard to them. The pages of this journal will be filled by contributors who possess little in common but the love of intellectual freedom and the hope of social progress, who are united by sympathy of spirit, not by agreement in speculation whose faith is in divine providence rather than in human prescription, whose hearts are more in the future than in the past, and who trust the living soul rather than the dead letter. It will endeavor to promote the constant evolution of truth, not the petrifaction of opinion. Today I am celebrating the rebirth of the movement that challenged the stale intellectual environment of the Academy, and I bring you the rebirth of The Dial, a magazine for poetry, philosophy, and religion. 
The Dial is an electronic and print journal of poetry designed to provide the culture of liberty with nothing more than a piece of etched stone, by which we may measure the progress of light in a landscape where dead monoliths project shadows across every field. We do not worship stones or prophets, but we walk amongst the mere sculptures of men and women, now petrified by opinion. Our goal is to show them life once again, and a future towards which to strive without fear of what today lies in shadow. I am calling all libertarian poets in America and throughout the world, free and unfree, in the pursuit of a culture of liberty worthy of individuals looking to stride forward into the world, warmed by the light that freedom brings, confident in purpose, and forward-thinking in spirit. We are not looking for poetry about liberty, per se, but we strive to bring you the best by those who are likewise bringing animation to a world sculpted in the round.